0: Now then, let's turn to the uh, book of Ruth in the Old Testament. That's the book that we hope to study, God willing, for the next few Sabbath mornings. And you'll find uh, the book of Ruth on page 306. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem Judah went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Chilion Ephrathites of Bethlehem Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Mahlon and Hylian also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. So we read that uh, at the end of verse 1 or in the second half of verse 1 that a certain man of Bethlehem Judah went to dwell in the country of Moab he and his wife and his two sons. Now the Central character of this book is, of course, the one who gives the book its name. It's this Moabite,s called Ruth. It is the story of Ruth, after all. But there's no denying when you read the book, and it's not long. In fact, you should make a special effort to read through it entire in its entirety before we continue. Really. there's no denying that she shares the spotlight with Naomi, her mother in law. So much so that you can't really look at the story of one without looking at the story of the other. And that's why, as I indicated last week in the Intimations, we're going to study both together as two women of faith. Now, by way of background, as the opening verse tells us, the book is set in the days of the judges. You'll notice that the book Ruth immediately follows the book of Judges. It's connected to it. It's a kind of postscript to it. So everything that happens here in Ruth is set in the days of the judges. That was a 300-year period uh, between 1400 B.C. and 1100 B.C. And the period was the period between coming into the Promised Land and the first king being anointed, who was, of course, Saul, the first king of Israel, there was a 300-year gap between coming into the land and having the first king. I'll say something more about the days of the judges tonight because we're beginning to look at Samson's life this evening. But it's enough to say for now that these days, these 300 years, were very troublesome times. And in spite of revivals, which God sent actually quite frequently, the general spiritual trend was downward. I think if you were to look back, let's, let's take the same time frame, just as a period of reference, if you are going to go back 300 years in our own country— You would see several revivals, but you would undoubtedly see that the general spiritual trend is downward. Well, the same was true in the days of the judges. And by the time the 300-year period was finished, really things were spiritually very poor in Israel. What actually marked the end of that decline was the birth of Samson and of Samuel, two babies that were born at the same time uh, that God was going to use very powerfully to change the spiritual climate in the country. But the book of Judges, if you read it, closes with very ugly and immoral scenes. There is a a terrible scene that closes the book of Judges. And when you finish the book, it's a a spiritual refreshment, really, uh, to read this book, and um, the obvious grace that God shows in it. But I think that reminds us of three things just in the passing. First of all, it reminds us that however low things are, God always revives his cause. He always revives his cause, and it's it's good to remember that. It's good for us to remember it ourselves individually, that he will always revive ourselves, and he will always revive his cause. The morning always breaks. And when things are very low, as they are right now in the church in our land, it's good to remember that. One day, God will revive his cause. Uh, His people have the victory, and Christ has won that victory. It reminds us, secondly, that even when things can be quite disastrous nationally, they can be quite good in certain places and amongst certain people. There are still things that God is doing, even in the darkest times, that will really gladden your heart and lift your spirit if you but look for it. Now, sometimes some of us, for whatever reason, are prone to always look at the darker things or maybe the national picture. But the book of Ruth tells us that whatever else is going on in the days of the judges, there is something here that is good. Um, God is doing a remarkable thing, and that is something that we should rejoice in. Uh, We're told in the New Testament by the Lord himself that when one sinner is converted, that the angels themselves rejoice. And I think the way it's written, it's meant to imply that the heart of God itself is rejoicing. Now, if that is true over one sinner that repents it, ought to be true concerning ourselves in connection with one sinner that repents. There's something to make our hearts rejoice, and we should look for it and be grateful for it wherever we find it. That'll prevent us being too cast down. And again, just in connection with that, although the Bible often focuses on kings and queens and governments and people in power, stories like this remind us that there are ordinary people that God is working with all the time. Now, there are special reasons why people like uh, David come before us and people like Solomon and so on. Sometimes we say, well, these people are living a different life from me, really, not just culturally, but, but they're at the top. They're, they're people in power. Now, that's true, although God so records their lives that they have a lot to say to us still. But a passage like this reminds us that uh, the poor of this world are often rich in faith, or at least those who are not necessarily in power are sometimes rich in faith, and we can forget them and overlook them, but God never does. The kind of thing I'm getting at is, I suppose, something like this. You remember that Elijah uh, was complaining to God that he alone was left. Now, that's how he genuinely felt, that he alone was left, and he, he felt that there was no spiritual power left in Israel, that it had all gone. Now, I'm sure sometimes you can feel like that yourself, that the power is gone. There's nobody left. But God rebuked him and said, there are 7,000 people in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In other words, they have not compromised at all in their worship. A lot of the people in Israel had. They had accepted this strange synthesis of Baal worship and Jehovah worship. Their prophets got on famously fine, and they mixed with each other and dined at Jezebel's table. So the official church was just in harmony with Baal worship. But God said to Elijah, there are 7,000 who are just not tinged with this at all. A reminder to Elijah that they're there, and that God knows that they're there, And in God's due season, they will grow and they will flourish. So this book reminds us, just by its very presence here, it reminds us of these things. Now, I'm not going to tell the story of the book. Um, I suppose to some extent I assume a good number of you know it. Uh, For the benefit of those who don't, I think it's enough just to say this, that the book records the story of a family who move, from Israel to Moab. Uh, the family consists of a man and his wife, Elimelech and Naomi, and their two sons. Uh, after arriving in Moab, they left because of a famine, but after arriving in Moab, uh, the husband dies, and after a while, the two sons marry uh, two girls from Moab. Uh, Naomi decides to return to her own country of Israel, and her two daughters-in-law go with her because their husbands have died. Strangely, they both died. So she comes back, and her daughters-in-law, or one of them, I should say, comes back with her. In an amazing turn of providence, that daughter-in-law, Ruth, uh, finds a husband who is a distinguished man in Israel. Uh, She marries him, and although she is a Moabitess, Uh, Miles away from God originally, she becomes an ancestress of David and ultimately of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's really what the story is about, although of course there's a lot more to it. It's easy to see it as a love story, and it is a love story. But when we call it that, we mustn't understand that too narrowly. Because it's not just a story of love between uh, Ruth and Boaz. Uh, it's also a story of deep love between a mother in law and a daughter in law. Uh, there's lots of jokes in our culture about that particular relationship, in laws. Uh, but, but this shows us how deep and how spiritual. Uh, such a love can be between those who are brought together through marriage in the good grace of God. They, in fact, in some ways, the love of Ruth for Naomi and Naomi for Ruth transcends what appears to us anyway, um, that of Boaz and Ruth. I'm not saying it actually does, but I'm saying from the Scripture itself. It's something that strikes us more plainly. But again, it's not just a love story between them either. The the real love that comes to the fore in this book is the love of God. It's the love of God. And it's the love of God first to, to a backslidden people. And that's a precious thing. A people who have drifted away somehow from himself. He loves them and brings them back. And it's also the love of God to a stranger, somebody who is as Paul says, an alien to the commonwealth of Israel. A young Moabites woman God brings her as Boaz says under his own wing under the shadow of his own wing. A reminder to Israel that God was always interested in the outside world. Uh, Israel was called to be a missionary nation, really. She forgot that and became proud, pharisaic, and inward looking. But things like this are a reminder to her to look out, look outside, and bring the gospel to others. Now, with that, I think we can pretty much begin. And with the exception of Boaz, uh, who we find later in the book, all the main characters are introduced immediately in the narrative. And we need to begin with Naomi and her husband, Elimelech. And I mentioned, I mentioned Naomi first because she's definitely more at the heart of the story than her husband is. Um, there's a good case for saying that the book is mainly about Naomi, although the title tells us that it's mostly about Ruth. Naomi is also at the heart of it. In fact, Elimelech, pretty much disappears after his entry. In verse 3 of chapter 1, he dies and that's him gone. She stays center stage. But the book opens with this migration, this family moving from Israel to Moab. Now, it's not a significant journey, if you're uh, you're going to look at it just in terms of logistics, as they say, I mean, geographically or physically, it's not big. Although they're crossing an international border, they're only traveling about 30 miles. Uh, Maybe a shock to you. I mean, distances are so small, really, in that particular part of the world. It's just about a 30-mile journey from uh, Bethlehem in Israel uh, to the fields of Moab, where they settled. But it may be short uh, physically, but it's a huge journey for them to undertake spiritually. And we're meant to understand this, and we're meant to have it in our minds right at the beginning that these people are moving from the promised land where God had placed them with all the promises attached to being in the promised land, the promises of God's preservation and keeping and blessing and so on. They're moving from that land without an express guidance to do it. I'll come to that in a moment. They're moving from that land into a land that's steeped in idolatry, a land that's bordering them physically, but is a million miles away from them spiritually, worshipping the moon god Chemosh and with a hatred, really, of the people of Israel. So it's a big migration in that way. Now, people, I suppose, could view that in three ways, and I think people have. First of all, you could justify what the family have done. And you could say, well, they did it because there's a famine. I mean, what else are they supposed to do in a famine but just move? Second, you could take an opposite point of view. Instead of justifying it, you could condemn it and say that this is a clear backsliding on the part of Elimelech and Naomi. Third, you could say we don't have enough evidence to make a decision on it. We just don't know because the word doesn't plainly say so. For myself, I think it is quite plain that they have made a wrong move and that they are spiritually backsliding. I'm conscious maybe that some of you may not agree with that, and I'm also conscious that I've, I've often uh, said to you that in in reading the Bible, we should deal with scriptural characters as we deal with each other. In other words, if something's not obviously wrong, uh, we don't think it's wrong. In other words, we assume the best, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. That's how we should deal with each other, and that's how we should deal with biblical characters, too. So when I'm saying that they've done wrong here, I think I should make some attempt to to kind of justify that before you. Let's take a closer look at it. And we need to begin with the famine. Now one thing that's very notable about this famine is that it's not in Moab. It's not in Moab. They only have to travel 30 miles to a country that has been under God's displeasure, and there's no famine there. So there's a famine in the promised land of milk and honey, but no famine in neighboring Moab. That should alert us immediately. After all, you remember when they entered the land that God promised them certain things Uh, very plainly. He said to them that if you're obedient to my covenant, he says, I will send you rain, produce, and bread God also said that if you are disobedient, I will send you famine. Now, he says it to them more than once, but we read a passage in Deuteronomy there that made it crystal clear, if you are reading it and paying attention to it, God specifically promised rain, produce, and bread, but that he would withhold these things in the event that they were disobedient. That, by the way, was why Elijah prayed for a famine. It's a strange prayer to offer. But he prayed for a famine. We associate Elijah with praying for rain. Yes, he did, but only after he had prayed for famine. Uh, If you wonder why Elijah prayed for famine, it's because God had said that if people were disobedient, he would send a famine. And there was no famine, and Elijah is essentially saying, Lord, the people aren't taking you seriously. You you need to stand by your word. And God heard and he sent a famine. But in any case, that was the promise. I will send a famine. So here, a famine on the land with no famine in neighboring Moab immediately brings us to think of God sending this famine as a special famine, as a chastisement upon his own covenant people. Now, again, these things are in one way strange things, you know, and you need, you, you need spiritual understanding to see it. I mean, if you were going to look at this as an observer, you would say, well, here's Moab enjoying rain, sunshine, and harvests. God loves the people of Moab. And you would look at Israel uh, with dryness and famine, and you would say, well, these can't be the people of God. Uh, but actually, the reverse is the case. God is sending this hardship to Israel because he loves Israel, because of his special relationship with them. Those whom I love, God says, I rebuke and I chasten. How careful we have to be in these things. Uh, Looking on at it, you would just get it wrong. But God was sending this to Israel just because he loved them and they were his people. Now in that light, if this is a special chastisement of God upon Israel for faithlessness, clearly the duty of Elimelech and Naomi is a duty to stay in the land where God has placed them, where God has called them, and God has promised to take care of them. For example, we'll sing this later on, but in Psalm 37, um, speaking about the land, it says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. And then it goes on to say in verse um, 18 that the Lord knows the days of the upright Their inheritance in the land, in other words, shall be forever. They shall not be ashamed in the time of evil, and listen, and in the days of the famine they shall be satisfied. Now that's enough for Naomi and Elimelech to say, right, God has sent this here, but it's our duty to stay in the land in which the Lord has placed us. Now, that would have been different if God had given them a clear call to get out. Uh, Let me take an example of this kind of thing. Um, Back in Israel's history, uh, after Joseph was raised to power in Egypt, um, Joseph invited his father Jacob to come down to Egypt to be with him there. And Jacob's first response was to go. But then just as he came to the border of the promised land, he stopped. And he set up an altar. And he spoke to God. And God spoke to him and said, Don't be afraid to go down to, Jacob, to Egypt, Jacob. And then God explains to him why. But you see, you'll notice what's happening. Jacob checks himself and he says, I shouldn't really... Leave this place for Egypt unless God specifically means me to go there. And God gives him an express revelation to the effect that he should go down to Egypt. That's what I mean by a special call. In fact, Jesus' own father, um, Joseph, father in that sense, was the same. God had to come to him and say, Joseph, take your wife Mary and the child and go down to Egypt. Without that command, he, he would never go. I hope he would never contemplate going. So there can be a special word, but there's nothing like that here. What Naomi and Elimelech have to guide them is what you have and what I have, and that's the written word of God. That's what we've got too. I mean, there's no point in waiting for voices from heaven. God has closed the Bible and finished it, and here is our guide. And whatever is necessary, as the Westminster Confession of Faith tells us, whatever is necessary for faith and life is written in the Scriptures, and we're not to look beyond that. But if they would search the Scriptures, they had three good examples to guide them. Uh, The first was Abraham. Now, we read the narrative. Shortly after he arrives in Canaan, there's a panic, there's a famine, And he goes down to Egypt. And he gets out of it by the skin of his teeth. How many of you have gone to Egypt and got out of it by the skin of your teeth? Abraham did. Once he took the false step of going there, he then started to be economical with the truth. He got his wife in trouble and himself in trouble. But God took him out of it. Uh, There's the example of Abraham's son, Isaac. In his days, too. A famine came into the land. And God came to Isaac and said, Stay in the land, for I will be with you. Are you noticing a pattern? Stay in the land, for I will be with you. The third example is a bit of a tragic one. It's Abraham's nephew, Lot. There's no pressure on him. Normally, pressure is some kind of excuse, I suppose. Well, no, it's not an excuse. It's a reason for our behavior. It's never an excuse. Uh, But Lot, with no pressure on him, uh, lifts up his eyes towards the well-watered plains of Sodom and he chooses to pitch his tent there. And as you well know, before too long, he's got a house in the middle of the place and he's well and truly stuck there. And in fact, the Moabites, as a people, are the result of Lot's incest with the daughter, which is again a bit of a horrific incident in Genesis, but that's where the Moabites have come from. Clear warning signals, all these things are clear warning signals, they're more than warning signals, they're express commands to Elimelech and to Naomi to stay where you are in the promised land, and I will give you food. Now, I can't emphasize that too much, you see, because when we have clear guidance from the Word of God, that's the end of the matter. You, see. you can forget your prayers. Well, you know what I mean by that. Don't forget your prayers. But you can get forget prayers for special guidance because you've got it. Don't, don't wait for some kind of promptings or feelings because the Word of God overrides your promptings and your feelings when it says something that is God's will. I think I mentioned in connection with Job that when he was going through his sufferings, he had little in the way of a chart or a compass to guide him. But Naomi did, and Elimelech did. They had the clear word of God to guide them. And you beware whenever you take a step that is going beyond the clear guidance of God's word. Especially when you say, well, I I just think that this is what God is telling me. Don't talk about what you think God is telling you when God has told you the opposite in the Bible. Now, two questions arise. First, why do they do it? And second, who's primarily responsible for it? First of all, why do they do it? Well, there is always the possibility that it could just have been fear, um, which is unbelief at the end of the day. I mean, why are they afraid? Well, it's because of unbelief. That's why we give in to fear, like David. I mean, poor David, when things were going fine and then he just one morning said, I'm going to perish at the hand of Saul one day. Why did you say that, David? Why did you say that? I mean, God, God's extricated you from that man hundreds of times and You then decide to say, well, I'll perish at the hand of Saul one day. These things, they just come in and they get a hold of our minds and they govern our spirits and away we go in the wrong direction. It may have been something like that. Maybe they just felt in Bethlehem, which was a very fertile place. Maybe they thought, well, if the famine is biting here, it's getting bad and it's going to get worse and we'll perish. So let's get out of here. May have been. More sinister than that, and I mean that, may have been just the desire to maintain a certain standard of life. And you probably all know what that's like as a temptation. When we confuse our needs with our wants, and we decide to do things because we think, well, we need to, but we don't really need to. But we can't stand the alternative of dropping down a little bit. Have we got warrant for thinking that that may be the problem? Well, I think there is. First of all, there's no sign that this famine is what we would call a starvation famine. That's the kind of famine we're more familiar with, especially those of us who were alive in the 1980s when the first pictures were beamed through of a serious starvation famine in Ethiopia. That's still what we think of. When we think of famine. But this isn't a, a life-threatening famine. Um, it's not in Moab. There's no mass exodus from Bethlehem. You, you don't have scores of people leaving Bethlehem. In fact, when Naomi comes back to Bethlehem years later, she finds the people that she left behind there. They were okay. They lived through it. God's people remained in Bethlehem. But she didn't. And Elimelech didn't. In other words, it's a famine of scarcity rather than a famine of starvation. And and that's why the choice to leave the promised land here becomes much more, sadly, like the choice that Lot made. It's just better there. Or We've got things here that we're losing, and we're losing fast. Thirty miles across the border, our standard of life can be maintained just as is. Of course, the intention wasn't to stay in Moab. But we're told, of course, that they did. At the end of verse 2, you'll notice these fateful words. They went to the country of Moab, and they remained there. Oh, they did just a little later on at the end of verse 4 you're find that they've been living there 10 years. I'm quite sure that 10 years wasn't their intention when they went. Very sure about that. But that's the problem, you see, with these little decisions taken for the wrong reasons and with the wrong motives. They you're only going to do this and just a little thing. And and you've got the boundaries in your head. You know exactly what the boundaries are. In fact they probably had an idea how long they would stay and so But no, it never really works like that. Um, when, When you choose sin, sometimes you find yourself stuck in it. Stuck. And it's hard to get out. It's hard to get out. And like the psalmist speaks of elsewhere, they found bread, but they found leanness for their souls. Have you made that choice yourself? You chose something. You chose bread in some form or another, wealth, money, job change, change of house. Boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, who knows what, but leanness for your soul. But who was really responsible for this decision? Well, that depends what we mean by who's responsible for it. Do we mean who carries the can ultimately before God? Well, in that case, it's Elimelech, because he's the head of the household. I'll say something about that in a moment. But we could mean, um, who's the prime mover here? Who's really... Who, who's behind the decision to move? And if you ask the question that way, I think it's hard to see past Naomi. Why? Well, because the book's about her. Elimelech appears in verse 2 and disappears in verse 3. Naomi's shadow is over the whole book. She knows that it's all about her. She knows that God is dealing with her. When she comes back to Bethlehem, more than ten years later, she says, I went out full, she says, and I came home empty. Now, in some ways, she's very wrong In that, in other ways, she's right. She knows that God's been dealing with her through these years. She also says, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. That's because the people of Bethlehem were saying, Naomi's back, Naomi's back. And she's saying, don't call me Naomi, which means either grace or maybe even sweetness. Uh, Don't call me sweetness. Call me bitterness. Call me Mara. Because the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Well, true and false. True and false. But you see, the point is, she knows that it's about herself. She knows that it's about herself. Now you could say, but what about Elimelech? I mean, he is head of the household. And after all, he dies. And the two sons die. Well, indeed, that's right. Elimelech does die. And God possibly had his own message to Elimelech when he was dying. But you see, Elimelech's death is much more a chastisement to Naomi, is it not? It's not really. Well, yes, it can be a chastisement to Elimelech. But it's really to her. Think about it. Naomi's the one who's left in Moab. Naomi's the one who's lost her two sons. And she's lost her husband. And she's stuck in a heathen land. She is the one who is feeling the pain of the decision that was taken. Elimelech is not. Elimelech didn't even see his two sons die. He didn't even see that. But Naomi saw her husband die and her two sons die, and she's the one that God is dealing with right through this book. That's why I'm saying that we've got pretty good reason to say that the driving force behind the move is Naomi rather than Elimelech. Elimelech drops from view so quickly that we even wonder, was he really a man of God? I mean, we don't know, but I think that's probably where the judgment of charity comes in, Uh, with no good reason to say he wasn't. So let's believe he was, but he disappears quickly from view. But you could imagine the kind of conversations that they had. Conversations that you could have with your wife or with your husband. Uh, You can imagine Naomi saying, well, things are really hard. Uh, We don't have this and don't have that and things are getting worse. We've got to go and got to get out of here. Just across there in Moab there's fertile fields. And Elimelech saying, well, I know what you mean, but... Surely it's going to be okay. We're living in the house of bread. That's what Bethlehem means, the house of bread. I mean, surely God will provide. And Naomi says, I don't know if God, has he definitely promised that he'll provide if we don't use our common sense? Should we not think this through? We've got a famine here. Is God not telling us maybe to go? And Elimelech says, well, what's happened to others who have gone? What happened to Abraham when he went to Egypt? What happened to Lot when he chose to go to Sodom? And she says, well, maybe a short while, just just a short journey, gather supplies, just till things are a bit better and then we come back. You can imagine, have you had conversations like that? Not difficult conversations to imagine, but the result was that they decided to go. They decided to go. Can you look back on a decision like that and regret it? Are you about to make a decision like that, that you will regret yourself? If she was the prime mover, which I think she was, I think the rest of the book tells us that, let me say a couple of things. First of all, well, it's a word to wives and a word to husbands. First of all, wives, um, be careful that you don't, well, bully your husband into a spiritual course of action that he doesn't agree with. I say that to you as a wife because your power is great and you probably know deep down that you can do that. I've, I've said uh, pretty much half in jest before, but only half in jest, that men have the authority because women have the power. And uh, I, it's half in jest because there's a lot of truth in that. Uh, You do have the power to do such a thing, but be careful. If your husband does not see a spiritual course clearly, then be careful that you don't bully him into seeing it. Uh, Use um, your intelligence rather than your power to persuade your husband of it. He'll carry the can, uh, but you'll pay a price too. Husbands, If you're sure you're right in a spiritual course of action, uh, insist on it, but make sure you're right. There are examples in the scripture of being wrong and not listening to your wife. I think not long ago I mentioned the example of Abraham, who was determined to keep Hagar in the house. And more than that, he was determined to keep Ishmael in the house. That's in spite of the fact that they were spiritual poison in the home, and Ishmael had begun as a teenager to actually torment young Isaac, who was the heir of the promise. So when Isaac is about six, seven years old, when he's being weaned from the second weaning that they refer to as the weaning of the nursery, the Ishmael, who is much older, by the late teenager at this point, is actually persecuting him in the house. Now, uh, His mother, Hagar, is quite happy with the situation because Hagar's intention is to elbow Sarah out of her place and uh, for her to take Sarah's place. That's what's really going on in the house. The problem is that Sarah knows it, but Abraham doesn't know it. Abraham can't see it, you see. The father of the faithful can't see it, but his wife can see it. And Sarah, of course, famously one day she turns to Abraham and says, Look, Put them out. And Abraham's not willing to do it, but that night God comes to him, and he says, "What? Abraham, listen to the voice of Sarah, your wife, for the heir of the bondwoman shall not be, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free. Listen to the voice of your wife. Now, there's many a stubborn husband who can take the position of, well, God's invested me with a headship here, and so on and so on. Well, he has invested you with a headship. But that's not to be a a blind headship. It's it's not to be one that thinks that you're always right. Not at all. And it's God telling you to listen to the voice of your wife. In a particular spiritual situation, is, is she... Penetrating into the thing and discerning the thing much better than yourself. Husbands and wives need to be very careful in this matter. Now I think what's happened here is that Naomi has insisted that they move possibly because of a certain standard of life. Mistake. It's a big, big mistake. And uh, they decide to move and to migrate. We could say that it's a small step for them geographically. But um, it's a giant, catastrophic step spiritually. We'll see, God willing, next time how it turns out or how it begins to turn out. Let us pray. <clears throat> Our gracious God, teach us obedience to your revealed will at all times. Help us, too, not to be confused by other voices and feelings and temptations that so easily distract us. Help us as husbands and wives to be respectful of one another spiritually. And while wives need to recognize headship, we pray that the heads would recognize the importance of the influence of their wives too. Give us all the spirit of Samuel who said, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And we pray to have that ear that is open all the time to your voice and to your guidance. We thank you for these things written in this book. Written long ago, hundreds of years before our Lord came to this world. But how relevant and meaningful these words remain. And in the leadings and guidings that you gave, and even when they were ignored, we see the superintending guidance of God. For truly you do all things well, and we see you turning, even pain and disobedience and difficulty and hardship, to your glory and to your praise. For you are a great and gracious and merciful God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, Our last singing is in Psalm 37 on page 254. Page 254. And at verse 16, and we sing to the tune Coal Hill. Verse 16. A little that a just man hath is more and better far than is the wealth of many such as lewd and wicked are. How often the Bible tells us that. It's a source of true happiness is inside. It's spiritual. For sinners' arms shall broken be, but God the just sustains... God knows the just man's days, and still their heritage remains. They shall not be ashamed when they the evil time do see, and when the days of famine are, they satisfied shall be. But wicked men and foes of God, as fat of lambs decay, they shall consume. Yea, into smoke they shall consume away. Uh, These four stanzas, then, let's stand to sing them.